Well, good morning, church family. Good to see all of you today. You know, life is filled with morally risky situations. Situations where we might be tempted to say or to do something that we know to be wrong. Where we might be tempted to go against our values. Say or do something to hurt another person or disobey something that God commands us to do. And when Jesus was alive, there was this this religious group called the Pharisees who came up with their own unique solution to morally risky situations. See, the Pharisees reasoned that if God commands us not to do something, that we'll never be at risk of doing that if we never actually find ourselves close to that situation in the first place. So the Pharisees devised a system that they called making fences around God's commands. These fences were extra laws and extra rules that were created by the Pharisees to keep people from ever getting close enough to a situation where they might be tempted to disobey God. Let me give you a hypothetical example. Imagine that God gave us a command to never walk on the grass at Glenkirk Church. God commanded, never walk on the grass. So every time we walk from the parking lot to the sanctuary, we'd see the grass and we'd see a big sign, thus says the Lord, do not walk on the grass. Now, for some of us, that would make us want to walk on the grass, even though we hadn't thought about it before. So to protect us from that morally risky situation of walking on the grass, the Pharisees might put up six-foot fences all around the grass and put up a sign, thus says the Lord, do not climb the fence. Then they might put privacy screen on the fences and put up a sign that says, thus says the Lord, do not look at the grass. These fences, in this case, literal fences, would be intended to protect us, to help us avoid ever getting into a situation where we might be tempted to disobey the original command of God, do not walk in the grass. Now, by some estimates, the Pharisees created more than 1,500 of these additional laws and rules in order to make fences around God's commands. But is that the best way to live our lives? We're in a series called Reformed through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in this series, we're focusing on discipleship, what here at Glenkirk we call the journey of becoming, becoming fully devoted followers or disciples of Jesus. And to really live out God's commands in morally risky situations, we need to be reformed inwardly to break the cycles that lead us to disobey God's commands in the first place. And you can build 10,000 fences and it won't be enough to reform us inwardly. 
So today we're going to talk about being reformed in three morally risky areas. Sex, marriage, and honesty. I was trying to decide how many controversial subjects can I talk about in one message. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word as we hear the words of Jesus today from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You can be seated. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And in verse 21 through 48 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus fills in the true meaning and intent of six different Old Testament commands. Last week, Pastor Kate gave an amazing message on the first of these commands in verses 21 through 26. And as Kate mentioned in her message last week, um, both of us have been impacted by two formal, former Fuller Seminary professors, David Gushy and Glenn Stassen, for pointing out that in each of these six commands, when Jesus cites the Old Testament, Jesus follows a threefold pattern. First, Jesus quotes the Old Testament command, what we might call the, the traditional teaching of the Old Testament. Last week, in Pastor Kate's message, she showed us how Jesus fulfills the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And then following this threefold pattern, Jesus then identifies what Kate and I are calling a malforming cycle. These cycles are the inner patterns within our lives that prevent us from living out God's commands as they're interpreted by Jesus. These are cycles that need to be reformed in our discipleship. And so last week, Pastor Kate showed us that the malforming cycle of unresolved anger is what leads us to break the true intent of the sixth commandment. Unresolved anger leads to resentment and broken relationships and often spirals.
spirals into violent words and violent actions. Then Jesus called or gave us what we're calling a reforming practice. These are practices that as we integrate into our discipleship, over time, they break these inner cycles and free us to live out God's commands as they're interpreted by Jesus. And so last week, Pastor Kate talked about the reforming practice of reconciliation. These practices like reconciliation break the power of these malforming cycles and reform us so we can live out the true intent of God's commands. So in verses 27 through 30, Jesus follows the same threefold pattern, this time with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, by citing the seventh commandment, Jesus is assuming the Bible's teaching that sexual activity ought to be reserved for marriage between a husband and a wife. This is the Bible's consistent sexual ethic, even though we read about many biblical characters in the Bible who fall short of this ethic. This is also the historic view of the Christian church. Now, many people, both back then and today, find it difficult to accept this ethic. And many people who do accept it find it difficult to live it out. We live in a culture that often treats sexual activity as no different than drinking a cup of coffee. But reserving sexual activity for marriage is the Bible's consistent sexual ethic. Now, the Pharisees tried to avoid breaking the seventh commandment by building fences around it. The Pharisees, who all happened to be men, believed that women were the true cause of breaking the seventh commandment. And so they reasoned that if men didn't see women, then men wouldn't be tempted to break this commandment. And so the Pharisees built fences. They created laws and rules forbidding women from going outside their house unless it was absolutely necessary. The Pharisees reasoned that if men were never alone with women, they wouldn't be tempted. And so they created laws and rules forbidding men and women from being alone with each other. The Pharisees reasoned that if women avoided wearing certain clothing, then men wouldn't be tempted to break the seventh commandment. So the Pharisees created laws and rules restricting what women could wear outside the house, much like you see in modesty laws in some Muslim societies today. These are the kinds of fences the Pharisees built. But Jesus says that doesn't get to the heart of the problem, that there's actually a, a malforming cycle within us that leads us to breaking the seventh commandment, and that cycle is lust. Now, lust is simply a strong desire to have something that doesn't belong to you. So in this case, to have someone sexually that you're not married to. And although Jesus is addressing men here, what he says applies just as much to women as it does to men. But it is important to pay attention to his language. Jesus is not talking about physical attraction here. In the original Greek, verse 28 contains what's called a purpose clause. Could be translated, anyone who looks at someone for the purpose of lust. 
Jesus is talking about an intentional, lustful gaze, a purposeful decision to visualize another person as a sexual object. The malforming cycle Jesus identifies here is not physical attraction, it's lust. But the practice he gives us, the reforming practice in verses 29 and 30, seems a little extreme. Gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. Now, hopefully, if you took high school English, you learned about something that's called hyperbole. Hyperbole is where you make a purposeful exaggeration in order to make a point. For instance, if the service is slow at a restaurant, you say, wow, that took forever. Didn't really take forever. That's hyperbole. Or if your son comes home from the first day of college and said, the teacher gave me a ton of homework. It's not literally a ton. That's hyperbole. It's a purposeful exaggeration. Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's not telling us to maim ourselves. And we can be sure of that because none of the people who heard Jesus give this teaching gouged out their eye or cut off their hand. Jesus is telling us that if we really want to address the inner cycle that leads people to break the seventh commandment, we have to cut the things out of our lives that feed into that cycle. We are reformed in our sexuality by taking responsibility to steward our own bodies. Taking responsibility to steward our own bodies. In Richard Foster's classic book, The Challenge of the Disciplined Life, Foster pictures our sexuality as being like a river that's good as long as it stays within its proper channel. But Foster warns the moment our river overflows its banks, it becomes destructive. And the moment sex overflows its God-given banks, it too becomes destructive. Every person's river is a little different. And in some seasons of our lives, our river feels like class three rapids out of control. In other seasons, it may be more like a lazy river flowing slowly but steadily downstream. And in still other seasons, it may run underground, unseen and often unnoticed, yet still flowing beneath the surface. Jesus is telling us that each one of us who follow Jesus is responsible to keep our own river running within its God-given banks. I think that's part of his point about gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand. Although Jesus is using hyperbole, I think his point is that my lust comes from my body. It's my eye and my hand, not another person's eye or another person's hand. I am responsible for regulating what's happening in my own body. Now, gouging out an eye and cutting off a hand wouldn't actually eliminate lust, would it? But maybe there are some things that we need to cut out of our lives in order to break the cycle of lust. Things like pornography or inner fantasies that feed the cycle of lust if they're not cut out. And some people, you need to find safe people in your life that you can have honest conversations with about how to cut these things out of your life. Our sexuality can be reformed if we are serious about stewarding our bodies responsibly. This is part of our own discipleship. 
When Jesus talks about marriage and divorce in verses 31 and 32, he follows this same threefold pattern. First, it makes sense that Jesus would talk about marriage and divorce on the heels of talking about the seventh commandment. And so he starts again with the Old Testament command, the traditional teaching, that a man who divorces his wife should give her a certificate of divorce. In the Old Testament, only men were allowed to divorce their wives. Wives were not allowed to divorce their husbands. And the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy prescribed that any man who divorced his wife was obligated to give her a written certificate of divorce. This was for the wife's protection. So the man couldn't change his mind later. Or so the woman could legally prove that she was free to remarry. But the Old Testament law was vague about the reasons why a man might divorce his wife. And because of this, men divorced their wives for all kinds of reasons, many of them petty and superficial. And this created a malforming cycle of easy divorce. Many men treated their marriages as disposable and their relationship with their spouse as unimportant. Some men were constantly on the lookout for their next wife. In fact, it wasn't uncommon back then for men to be married five or six different times, which is all the more remarkable when you consider the fact that life expectancy was only in the 30s back then rather than the 70s like it is today. And so the reforming practice Jesus gives to break this cycle is to persevere in marriage whenever possible because marriage is a covenant. Jesus says that any husband who divorces his wife is breaking a covenant unless that covenant has already been broken first. In other words, God did not intend marriage to be disposable. Easy divorce perpetuates infidelity because God intended marriage to be a lifelong covenant. Now, this is very different than how most societies and governments view marriage. In fact, years ago, when C.S. Lewis wrote his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis said this. He said, there ought to be two, dis two distinct kinds of marriage, one governed by the state with rules enforced on all citizens, and the other governed by the church with rules enforced by the church on its own members. You see, Lewis did not believe that the Bible's teaching about Christian marriage ought to be enforced by the government on non-Christian marriages. That's the church's domain, not the government's domain. I think Lewis was onto something. Jesus' teaching here is for his disciples, men and women who've come out of the crowd, trusted in Jesus, and decided to follow Jesus. We are reformed in marriage by treating marriage as a covenant. Treating it as a covenant. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Now, it's not a covenant that is for everyone. Being single is just as valid and legitimate a calling for followers of Jesus as being married is. Jesus himself was single. The apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament, was single. And the church ought to value people who are unmarried just as much as it values unmarried people. If a follower of Jesus does get married, though, they enter into a covenant relationship that's intended to be lifelong. 
Now, does that mean the Christians who end up divorced are living perpetually in sin? That is how some people interpret Jesus's words here. In the Roman Catholic Church, divorced people who've remarried are not allowed to take communion. When I went through my divorce 15 years ago, the seminary where I was teaching told me I couldn't teach there anymore. They believed that divorce automatically disqualified me from ministry. Unfortunately, not everybody sees it that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here teaching today. The topic of divorce and remarriage is a complicated one, and there are other Bible passages to consider in addition to this one. Topic that's far too nuanced to consider and cover in just a few minutes. And so to study more, I want to recommend David Instone Brewer's book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Church. It's an excellent book that looks at all the biblical passages and synthesizes them together. Really recommend that book. But let's not miss Jesus's main point here. Disciples of Jesus who are married should not treat their marriages as disposable. Instead, those who follow Jesus ought to persevere in marriage as much as possible. Now, marriage is hard, and there are valid reasons why people end up divorced. And the church should never treat divorced people as second-class Christians. But divorce should always be the last resort rather than the first impulse. We break the cycle of easy divorce by being reformed to view marriage as a covenant. The last morally risky situation Jesus talks about in this section is honesty in verses 33 through 37. And again, Jesus follows the same threefold pattern. He first gives the traditional teaching from the Old Testament. Keep your oaths and keep your vows. An oath is a promise to tell the truth. A vow is a promise to fulfill a future obligation. Oaths are about meaning what we say and vows are about doing what we say. And both are related to truthfulness. So behind verse 33 is actually the ninth commandment. You shall not bear witness against your neighbor. To break our oaths or break our vows is to break the ninth commandment. And so the deforming cycle Jesus identifies here is dishonesty. Dishonesty. In Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer says the existence of oaths and vows in the world is evidence that we live in a world of lies. Taking an oath or making a vow could imply that I'm free to lie if I'm not under oath or free to break my promises if I'm not under a vow. In fact, back in Jesus's day, people found sneaky loopholes to take oaths and make vows with loopholes that would allow them to lie or to break their promises. <clears throat> so the malforming cycle Jesus is pointing to is dishonesty. We become reformed in our words by becoming people of truth. Becoming people of truth. Every statement a disciple of Jesus makes should be as if it's under oath. Every commitment a disciple of Jesus agrees to should be as if it's a vow. Discipleship means truth-telling in our words and truth-living in our actions. See, once a lie is spoken or a promise is broken, it can't be undone. 
I have a friend who accepted a call to become a pastor at a new church. And right after my friend started, a member of that church started to circulate a lie about him. It was clearly a lie. But maybe you've heard that old saying, a lie travels halfway around the world before the truth even gets out of bed. That lie spread so quickly in that church that before he knew it, many of the church leaders believed it. He left that church after just nine months because it was simply too hard to lead people who believed a lie about him. Dishonesty can destroy people's lives. It can tear apart families. It can rip apart churches. In our network of churches, one of the confessional statements we use is called the Westminster Catechism. And the Westminster Catechism includes summaries of the Ten Commandments. And when it gets to the Ninth Commandment, it says that breaking the Ninth Commandment includes things like lying, slandering, backbiting, gossiping, whispering, scoffing, and misconstruing other people's intentions, words, and actions. Wow, let that sink in. The problem with oaths and vows is they could give the impression that doing all those things is just fine as long as I'm not under an oath or under a vow. Jesus says that kind of thinking is of the evil one. Now, some have interpreted Jesus' words here as forbidding his disciples from ever taking an oath or making a vow. But in the Greek, the actual command is found in verse 39. All you need to say is simply yes or no. I took vows when Cindy and I got married 11 years ago. I took ordination vows when I became your, your senior pastor five years ago. Jesus is telling us to be the kind of people that whether we're under an oath or not, whether we've taken a vow or not, that people know that we are speaking the truth and will do what we say. We break the cycle of dishonesty, not by avoiding oaths and vows, but by being the kind of people for whom oaths and vows are unnecessary. Being people of truth in our words and actions, this is part of our discipleship. One of my favorite local trails is the Ice House Canyon Trail near Mount Baldy. But every winter when it snows, that trail gets really dangerous. And so after the snowfall, the U.S. Forestry Office puts up a sign warning people not to venture on the trail unless they're prepared for alpine conditions. But of course, lots of people ignore the warning. And many people every season end up needing to be rescued. Every season, at least one person dies. And when conditions get really bad on the Ice House Canyon Trail, the Forestry Service actually puts up a fence closing the trail. And that's pretty much how the Pharisees approached life, especially morally risky situations. They put up fences so people wouldn't venture onto the trail in the first place. After all, they, they might slip, they might fall, they might need to be rescued. But you know, for people who've trained in mountaineering, the Icehouse Canyon Trail can be hiked safely during the winter. 
need the right equipment. You need warm clothing and crampons and an ice axe and maybe some snowshoes. And even more importantly, you need training on how to do the, use those things, how to self-arrest with your ice axe, how to use crampons, how to check for avalanche conditions. Is it still risky? Yes. But with proper equipment and good training, it's a whole lot less risky. Rather than fence off morally risky situations in life, Jesus gives us practices to reform us so that we can face risk as we follow him. We've talked about three areas, sex, marriage, and honesty. There are more we could talk about. We've talked about the, the malforming cycles of lust and easy divorce and dishonesty that, that lead us to break these commands in the first place. Scan your newsfeed on any given day and you'll see story after story of how these three cycles are destructive in society and in the church. We all need to be reformed to climb the trail of spiritual maturity. We need the right training so we don't slip and fall. And that's what discipleship is. It's about learning to break the cycle of lust so we can learn to better steward our bodies responsibly. It's about breaking the cycle of easy divorce so whether we're married or unmarried, we can see and treat marriage as a covenant about breaking the cycle of dishonesty so we become people who tell the truth and who live the truth. Breaking these cycles doesn't happen overnight or after listening to one person give a single message on a Sunday morning. It is a process and it is a process that we cannot do alone. We need other disciples, other men and women who are at varying stages in the discipleship process. This is why we're asking you to join one of our seven-week discipleship groups starting in two weeks. It's why we're asking all of our existing small groups to go through the discipleship material over those seven weeks because we cannot do it alone. We will slip and fall if we try to climb the mountain without proper equipment and proper training. Not that these groups will be a cure-all for discipleship, but we are praying that God would use them to jumpstart the process. Because 10,000 fences won't keep us from morally risky situations. Instead, Jesus invites us to venture onto the trail together. Treacherous though it may be at times, in order to ascend to greater and greater heights of devotion, discipleship, and spiritual maturity for our sake and for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these challenging words of Jesus. And Lord, we admit that some of them cut deep within us, but we trust that they come from you and that they bring healing. And God, we admit that we cannot do this alone. That we need each other. And that we are all in process. All at varying stages. So Father, help us be patient with each other. 
impatient with ourselves as we step onto the icy trail together to go to where Jesus invites us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.